Our sermon text today is Mark chapter 14. Uh, We're going to be beginning in verse 43. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can uh, turn to the Pew Bible, page 800. Page number 800. Uh, As we near the end of our series on Mark, we're going to end it on Easter Sunday, which is just a few weeks away, Uh, two more Sundays after this. Uh, We are going to see some very dark moments in Jesus' life, and this morning and next week are two of the darkest. And so as we read, you're going to notice, uh, I'm not sure that there's a lot of happy or joy or glimmers of hope here, but I hope that as um, I'm able to talk to you about it, Lord, helping me, that I'll be able to show you that God uh, gave to Jesus the darkness that we might have the light. Amen? And so let's look together, starting in verse 43. And immediately, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, And kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, and he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days... I will raise another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. 
But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Jesus remembered, or Peter remembered, how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. Amen. Several years ago, uh, my family and I went to visit a cavern, a cave system in eastern Tennessee. We took the kids there for an outing one day on our vacation up to the mountains. And uh, I am not typically one who is a fan of caves. Uh, I'm not that scared of heights, but when it comes to confined spaces, I have a little bit of a phobia. Uh, I wouldn't call myself full-blown claustrophobic, but I'm close. And so going through these you know, narrow passageways and feeling like I'm closed in is, is not my favorite feeling in the world. But I did it for the kids, right? I knew they would enjoy it. And so we went into the, the cave. We went deeper and deeper into the heart of the mountain. It was beautiful, I have to admit. They had spotlights on all the formations, and it just looked awesome. And we went to the deepest part of the cave that they would take you to. And in this huge room, they cut out all the lights, they always do that. They trick you. They get you down deep and then they cut off the lights every time you visit a cave. And they do that so that you'll feel what the cave is like naturally. And let me tell you, I have never, ever experienced darkness like that. Uh, it, it, it is like a heavy blanket is just put over the top of you. I mean, the darkness is so thick. Uh, I know it's a cliche, but you literally can't see the hand in front of your face. The only thing I could think was... What if the lights were really to go out, like power failure, and we had to make it out of here with no light? Could we do it? And I had that really scary feeling that we wouldn't be able to get out. This would become our tomb right here, this giant room in the cave. Well, every time I read the end of Jesus' life, these last few scenes, I feel like that. Jesus is going to the cross, and one by one, all the lights go out in his life. One by one. He's arrested, he's betrayed, he's denied, he's slandered, he's mistreated. One by one, the people around him go out until Jesus is left in utter darkness by himself to carry out the atonement of the cross. Utter darkness. And yet, I'm always amazed. I'm, I'm amazed at the awesome claim of Christianity. And I want you to hear it this morning. This is the Christianity's most awesome claim to me. And maybe it will be to you. This scene is not a cave. This scene is a tunnel. Do you know the difference? A cave, you don't know where you are. Who knows how to get out if it's dark? A tunnel, there's one way to go. And eventually, if you keep going that way, boom, light's going to come on the other side of the tunnel, right? The proverbial light at the end of the tunnel. 
Jesus, through his darkness bearing, through bearing the darkness that we should have borne, opened up a tunnel through suffering so that suffering never has to be permanent, so that our condition in sin does not have to be eternal, so that we can go with him to the other side, that Easter Sunday light that breaks out when Jesus rose from the dead. And so when we read this story and see all the lights going out, let's, let's read it in hope this morning. And I want to show you three things to that end, if you'll look at your bulletin. First of all, we're going to see something of the nature of sin, which is what causes this darkness to, to occur. Then we're going to see the silent lamb as he stands alone in the darkness. And then lastly, I want to show you the weeping disciple at the very end. And that will show us how we ought to respond to Jesus ourselves. So first of all, let's look at the nature of sin. Uh, there in verses 43 to 52, that kind of opens the story where Jesus is still in the Garden of Gethsemane where he had prayed. We saw him last week wrestling with the Father over the cup that he would have to drink. And it's there that Judas comes with the temple police to turn Jesus over to be arrested. And never in any part of the Bible is the horror of sin more clearly portrayed than here. It's never more gross and violent and stark than here. Uh, there's a British preacher that I've always enjoyed listening to. He's in his 90s now, so he doesn't usually preach, but you can listen to his old recordings. His name is Dick Lucas, Richard Lucas. And he preached for years at a church right in downtown London, so a busy, bustling place. And he, he used to say, do you want to see what sin really is? Look at the cross. Because here's what sin is, he says, and I love his way of putting it. This is what sin is. Given half the chance, mankind would kill God. I want you to think about that. That's what's going on here. Given half the chance, mankind would kill God. Here's Judas. He's found his chance. Here are the religious leaders. They have found their chance in Judas. And all of them have violent intentions which they are now carrying out under the cover of darkness. Judas' very words give it away. Did you notice the word he uses in verse um, 44? He says, when I kiss him, you'll know him. And when I do, seize him. And that word seize is a violent word. It's like a wrestling word, like snatch him and grab him and pull him in and make him submit and take him where you want him to go into death. Violence. And then it says in the next verse, that's exactly what they did. When Judas identified who Jesus was, they came and in fact they seized him. They laid hands on him. Violence began. Later they will spit on him. They will receive him with blows. They will hit him over the head with a stick. They will slander him in court. And yes, even his disciples who love him, they don't hate him, they love him, even they are caught up in the temptation and they all run off. Peter doing the worst of all, denying his friend in his hour of need. Is there any place where sin is more vividly portrayed than that? This human desire to rule over our own life, which would lead us to try to kill the one who has the throne now, so that we can take his crown and take his place. Killing God is what they're up to. Seizing God, laying hold of him. Not to love him, not to worship him, 
Not even to receive good things from him, but to put the light out on him so that human beings might have the run of the place. Sin, make no mistake about it, is violent to the core. Whether you recognize it or not, and actually that's another insight from these verses, it's hard to recognize just how bad sin is from the surface. Notice each of the major sins in the passage, the betrayal of Judas, the running away of the disciples, the arrest and the slander of the religious leaders and their violent blows, all of it is covered over in niceness. So take Judas, for example. Uh, When he betrays Jesus, what does he use to betray him? A kiss and a compliment. Oh, rabbi. It looks so good, right? It looks so friendly, and yet underneath, daggers. The religious leaders, they arrest him, beat him, put him on trial, and lie about him. And yet, what does it look like? Just leaders trying to go about justice trying to give a fair trial, trying to do the right thing. Looks nice, daggers underneath. Even the disciples, they're running away and hiding. What does it look like on the surface? Just a bunch of poor guys, scared, running away, trying to save their own skin. What could be bad about that? Self-preservation. And yet underneath, the dagger of rejection against the one whose life had been all love. And I want you to see it this morning. This is sin in its essence. Daggers underneath, beauty outside. Seduction on the outside, destruction within. Uh, We've got several fishermen in the church, and y'all know this, it's true. You can't just throw out a hook, a bare hook, and expect to catch the fish. You might get lucky, okay, somebody probably has caught one with a bare hook, and some fish are so hungry that they might, but it's rare. What do you have to do with the hook? You've got to conceal it, and here's how you conceal it. You put it within something that the fish wants, a juicy worm, a shrimp, a minnow. You give the fish on the outside what they think they need, what they think they must have, so that on the inside, the dagger that you're really trying to deliver to them will be delivered. And sin always appears that way. It does never come to us, or hardly ever come to us, with horns and a pitchfork. Don't expect sin to come to you with horns and a pitchfork. Now, this is true if you're here today and you think, I don't, I'm not a sinner, I don't think I'm a sinner anyway, at least not as bad as you're saying, Stan, this is... A little over the top. I wouldn't kill God. I just want to ask you, is that really true? Or is it just that you've taken the bait? You've got to ask that question of yourself. And if you're someone who's like, I'm not really that bad of a sinner. I'm a pretty good person. How do you know that that's true? Or how do you know that you've just been duped like a fish? You owe it to yourself and to God to come up with the answer to that question before you die. I would recommend today to come up with an answer to that question. Have you been duped? Or is it really true what you think, that you're really not as bad a sinner as I'm saying? Well, if you are someone who knows you're a sinner, and that's many of us in the room, every Christian, in fact, knows this to the core. We know it every day. Are you, even though you know you're a sinner, are you, at, are you asleep at the wheel when it comes to sin? Remember, sin does not come dressed in 
devil costumes. No one ever got tempted by sin coming and saying, hey, do you want to wreck your family today? Hey, don't you want to wreck your family? Come with me. Don't you want everybody to think you're a liar and never trust you again? Come on. Don't you want to be hated? Come on. It's never that. It's always seduction. Don't you want to feel good? Don't you want to get what you really want in life? Don't you want to be happy? It's, it's the juicy worm. But make no mistake about it, you will wreck your family. You will be destroyed. You will be hated. It, there's daggers beneath the worm. And so Jesus had told his disciples before they even got to this point. Remember last week we saw it. Why are you sleeping, Jesus said. Remember that? He was praying. They were snoozing. He was like, why are you sleeping? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. He knew it. He, Jesus knew how subtle the temptation would be to preserve their own skin rather than stick with Jesus. And so he warned them about it. But in spite of his warnings, they were still duped. And we are too so often. I'm duped often, are you? Don't go to sleep at the wheel over the nature of sin. It is violent against the Lord. Now secondly, I want you to see the silent lamb. Let me give you, and this is going to be looking at verses 53 to 65, but let me first give you a statement from another part of the Bible, and I want you to think about this. The Son of Man came to destroy the works of the devil. That's from 1 John. The Son of Man came to destroy the work of the devil. Now, if that's all you had in the Bible, that one statement, what would you guess would be Jesus' strategy for that destruction? Some kind of violence, some kind of, at least something that remotely looks like fighting, right? Something that remotely looks like putting up a fight. And yet you come to verses 53 and 65, and it seems like this is Jesus' chance. He's being put on trial. He's being falsely accused of something he's not guilty of. And you would think, Jesus, here's your chance. Destroy Satan. Tell him, tell him what's real. Defend yourself. Hire a good lawyer. All the things that we would do. And yet it tells us very plainly, doesn't it? Verse 61, he remained silent. And made no answer. Have you ever been falsely accused of something you didn't do? How easy is it to stay silent? Not very, right? Imagine today you get arrested on your way home and you're accused and arrested for something you didn't do. What would be your next step? 1-800-ASK-GARY or whatever that number is. You know, Morgan and Morgan. I don't know who you're going to call, but you're going to call somebody. Aren't you? Because it is, it is well nigh impossible to be falsely accused and not try to defend yourself. There's just something that rises up in you and in me. And yet here is Jesus. And we've got to ask this question, why would he do that? 
I mean, yeah, we know the trial is a sham. Not because they're not following procedure, because they are, right? I mean, it tells you very clearly, step by step, they're looking for witnesses. That's what you do at a trial. They have witnesses, but they're all lying, and they catch them lying, and so they have to dismiss their testimony. That's also good practice at a trial. Finally, they have to become the questioners, and they ask him point blank in verse 61, Are you the Christ? And he says, I am the Christ. And that's when they say, okay, now we have witnesses. All of us have witnessed him saying something blasphemous. Blasphemy! Off with his head. They're following procedure, but yet the trial is a sham. Why? Well, because, of course, it wasn't blasphemy for Jesus to say, I am the Son of God, the Messiah. And why wasn't it blasphemy? Because he was the Son of God and the Messiah. Now, of course, if he wasn't, it would be blasphemy. They're right about that much. But because they had prejudged prejudice that he must not be the Messiah, he cannot be the Messiah, they automatically jump to the conclusion that he is blaspheming when he simply affirms the truth about himself. And yet, when they cry blasphemy and when they condemn him to death, there in verse 64, he gets the sentence of death. He still does not try to defend himself. I'm not a lawyer, but even I can tell you, any lawyer could have gotten Jesus off. It wouldn't have been all that hard. Hey, y'all, here's a guy that was blind, and he can see now. Oh, here's Lazarus up to the witness stand. He was dead. And Jesus called him back. I mean, it wouldn't have been that hard, y'all. And yet Jesus doesn't reach for that kind of help. Why is that? Here's, here's the heart of the whole Bible. The answer to that question is the heart of the Bible. Because Jesus Christ was not standing there for himself. He was standing there for you and me. And he was not guilty of blasphemy, but you and I are very much guilty of blasphemy and all the other things that flow out from it. And so when Jesus stood silently, it was like he was pleading guilty without saying it. And he was pleading guilty because we are guilty, because he was going to go to the cross for us. You see, the cross is not just about Pilate crucifying Jesus or Caesar or this religious court. The cross is about God executing someone for sin. And in that court, Jesus Christ says, I am to be counted guilty so that the guilty might go free. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He knew no sin. It's remarkable about Jesus that this court spent all that time trying to find some evidence against Jesus and they still couldn't find any. I mean, if they opened up an investigation on me and just kept looking until they found something, or you, guess what would happen? Eventually, they'd probably find something. There's something in there. 
But with Jesus, the closer you get in your inspection of him, the more beautiful he appears. And yet that beautiful, spotless Lamb of God stood silently before the slaughterers because he was going to the cross to bear the slaughter that his people justly deserved. Their violence was to be met with God's wrath. And yet, instead of that, Jesus took the wrath, took the violence, and yes, drank the cup, as we said last week, right down to the very bottom. A silent lamb, not defending himself, sealing his own fate because he wanted to be there for people like you and me. Now let's look in the last place today, and this is where we'll end, at verses 66 to 72, because there we see a weeping disciple. And I want to make the case to you as we close that the only kind of disciple is a weeping disciple. Of course, the weeping disciple is Peter. Peter, it says in verse 66, was below in the courtyard. He was outside warming himself by the fire. It was the early spring, you know, Easter time, and so it was still a little cold in Jerusalem. And there was Peter, the only disciple, by the way, who hadn't run off and hid. So he was still being fairly brave. But he stood at a distance. And one by one, these servants of the high priest came up and began to suggest or even accuse outright that Peter was one of the disciples. He was one of the followers of Jesus the Nazarene and one of the Galileans. Uh, Probably they saw it or heard it from his accent. He had a Galilean accent. He probably dressed like a Galilean, which was kind of like country folk in Israel. Uh, Here in America, it's southern people who stand out for their accent. Typically, in Israel, it was the northern people. It was the Galileans who stood out because they had a country accent. Here's Peter giving it away. Every time he says, I don't know Jesus, he's giving it away. And they keep coming back. And yet, what does Peter do? Continues to deny him. In fact, in an increasingly violent manner. At first, he just uses the I don't speak English card, right? <laughs> or I don't speak Hebrew. That's what he says there in, uh, in verse 68. I neither know nor understand what you're saying. I do not speak the same language. Well, that doesn't work, and so he just has to out- outwardly deny it in verse 70. And then finally, that didn't work, and so he has to do something extraordinary. He calls down a curse on himself and swears... I don't even know that man. By the way, calling down a curse and swearing doesn't just mean Peter cussed. It's worse than that. It means he said something like, I swear to God and may God kill me if I'm lying that I don't know Jesus. That's cold. Peter's the last light to go out around Jesus. And yet, it seems, Jesus has a purpose in it. 
In fact, another gospel writer tells us that Jesus, maybe there was a window and he was in the courtyard. It says Jesus turned and looked at Peter from inside. Here it simply tells us that it was the rooster crowing that got Peter's attention. Jesus had told Peter, this very night when the rooster crows twice, you will have already denied me three times. And so when the rooster crowed twice, he remembered, it said, Jesus' words, verse 72. He remembered the words Jesus had spoken, and the words of Jesus broke his heart. Opened up his heart, and he began to break down, it says, and weep. And he would spend the next several hours, those hours where Jesus would go to the cross and hang there dying for Peter. Peter would spend it weeping alone which actually I want to tell you is a fitting way for sinners like us to respond to the cross. Now what purpose do you think Jesus had for Peter in this? I want to leave you this morning with this idea. There is an advantage to having a broken heart. Do y'all know Neosporin? Right, everybody knows Neosporin medicine. Uh, if you put Neosporin on healthy skin that's not broken, what does it do? Makes you greasy, right? It just makes your skin greasy. I, I'm not sure that it does anything that it's supposed to do on healthy skin. It just sits there and makes you look greasy. But if you take Neosporin and you put it into an open sore or a break in the skin, what does it do? Heals it. And actually, it heals it very fast, by the way. This is not an advertisement for Neosporin, but it's pretty good stuff. It works quick. The gospel of Jesus Christ is like that. It's medicine, y'all. It's medicine. That's what the gospel is. It's not, it's not just like a side dish onto the main course of life. It is medicine to the soul, which means it doesn't do any good if your heart's not broken. Specifically, if your heart's not broken over your sin and denial of Jesus, the gospel won't do any healing in your heart. It can't. It's just falling on the surface. You see, it's not enough to come to Jesus just because your life's not working out for you and you need some help. I mean, by all means, still come to Jesus, but you're going to have to learn that's not enough once you come to him. You can't just come to Jesus because you're sick and you're scared of death. By all means, come to Jesus, but there's got to be more there. There has to be a brokenness of the heart over how you have treated Jesus. Because it's into that wound that the gospel is designed to go. And when it gets there, it will begin to heal you in a way that nothing else can. It'll take several weeks for Peter, but several weeks from this scene, Peter is preaching the first sermon in the Christian church, and 3,000 people are becoming Christians that day. Just a couple weeks before that, he sits on the beach with the resurrected Christ eating breakfast, and Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? One for each time he denied him. And each time, Peter gets to say it out loud like he should have said it before. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Healing. Healing. But the healing couldn't happen without the broken heart. 
We live in a time, y'all, where we want to avoid broken hearts. We want to tell our children they don't have to have a broken heart. We want to insulate them. We want to insulate ourselves. We want to pretend like we don't even really have a broken heart even when we do. And Jesus says, wait a minute. Don't you want my medicine? Let me break your heart. (laughs) In a good way. Not so that your heart might remain broken. But so that it might be thoroughly healed. Thoroughly healed. And listen. If you're trying to run away from God. And run away from that broken heart that I'm talking about. He'll find you. I love, I love this. He used a rooster to bring Peter to a broken heart. Have you ever heard of such things? A rooster. And I've seen it happen, you know. When you're trying to run from God and you open your Bible and start reading the genealogies, he'll somehow convict you. Noah begat so-and-so, and all of a sudden you're convicted. God can do anything, and he will find you if you're running away from him. He will find you. And whether it's a rooster crow, whether it's the word of somebody that you know and love, whether it's the word of a preacher, whatever it is, he'll find you, and he'll bring you to a place of a broken heart. And it's there that the medicine goes in. Because you see, this scene, as dark as it is, is no cave. It is no cavern. It is a tunnel. And Jesus is conquering Satan in this scene. He's leading us steadily through the tunnel to the other side. Amen? What a blessing. 